Welcome to the Synaxis Podcast. A Synaxis is a liturgical gathering. It can also refer to an unveiling event. The Synaxis Podcast is a weekly gathering hosted by yours truly, Scott Jones, for the purpose of finding the life-giving healing word of the gospel and the words of the weekly lectionary passages. Join myself and a guest each week as we explore the lectionary text together. This is the place for gospel-rich, grace-saturated, and a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest is Adam Borneman. He is an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church of USA and currently serves as program director for Macedonian Ministry, which provides diverse peer learning groups for pastors in communities all across the United States and Scotland. I give you Adam Borneman. Adam, welcome back to the podcast. Good to be back. We are journeying into the second Sunday of Lent, and we have our first reading is from the book of Genesis, chapter 15, uh, 1 through 12, and then 17 and 18. And here is an interesting text, because this is, I believe, the first time Abraham speaks to God, right? And uh, he basically says that, uh, like, basically, God's done all these amazing things for him, including, right, doesn't the, doesn't the uh, deliverance of Lot and the military victory and stuff come right before this? Yeah, it does. And um, it, it might be the first time that Abraham's, that's an interesting point. It's not the first time that the Lord speaks to Abraham, but it might be the first time that... To Abraham, but it's the first time, it's, it's the first time that God speaks yeah, back. Yeah, it's the first time that... I mean, the Abraham, I'm sorry, yeah, the Abraham speaks back to God. Which is, which is pretty interesting. And um, and his first words are yeah. doubt. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, gosh, you could spend a lot of time on Genesis 15. Um, there's so much here, but you know, it is a, it is a pivotal moment for obvious reasons because of the way that the New Testament picks on this and picks up on this, and especially Paul. Um, but what's interesting to me is that when it begins, it says the Lord came to Abraham. Um, whenever that shows up in the Old Testament, I'm always struck by it because sometimes it's just you know this apparition almost or a vision they get, but Sometimes it just says the Lord came to Abraham or the word came to Abraham. And I think we're accustomed to treating that like a, a something less than it is. Uh, what, what does it mean that the Lord came to Abraham? What does it mean that Abraham was in the presence of the Lord? Um, I, I have a bias here. I tend to think very Trinitarian about these passages. Um, but that, that always stops me in my tracks when it says the Lord came to Abraham. Well, if you were thinking Trinitarian, you were thinking it's the... Pre-incarnate Christ or something, Augustine would say no to that. No theophanies well, are the yeah. <laughs> pre-incarnate Christ. So, although we're not bound by Augustine yeah. on these things. He, he also said that proof of the scripture's reliability is he's, his buddy saw a giant's footprint in Corsica. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't want to say that, like, like I wouldn't want to, But yeah, I do think it, it, it's interesting that, yeah, the word of the Lord comes to him in a vision. I mean, he says this. And there's this dialogue, and you know, I think that what we have here is the validation of Joel Osteen, right? That that he says, "Hey, you're going to be, I'm going to be the Lord." Says, "I'm going to, don't be afraid. I'm your shield. Your words going to be great." Oh Lord, just um, just have Eliezer from Damascus might be my heir, and you can just hear Osteen say, "See, Abraham didn't claim his blessing. He didn't believe God had his best in mind. If you could ask God for second best, God might give you second best." 
That was my. That was a nice. Well, it's not a great Osteen, but it's better when I do that. Like Cheshire Cat smile with it, but it's his audio, so you can't really see this. But that's interesting, though. That this is in some sense comforting for because I feel like people are like, well, if we had encounters like Abraham, we wouldn't be doubting, and we wouldn't be our faith wouldn't be as ambiguous. And and now it seems like Abraham's faith was pretty ambiguous. Oh yeah, it it, it really was. Um, and yeah, I, I find that comforting too. Is that Abraham's full of full of doubt, and um, you know, you have to have this recounting where he says, "I'm the Lord who brought you out." From Ur, the land of the Chaldees. I mean, there's this whole, you know, I guess what uh, you commentators might call like a, a, a covenant prologue, right? I mean, you're you're accounting all the deeds of the king that you've done on behalf of this person, and you have to set this up to say, see, I've kept my promises. This is worth it. Now, step out in faith and see what happens. Um, and you know, there's two or three times in these chapters between twelve, fifteen, I suppose, seventeen as well, uh, where this happens, and it's no wonder that. You know, the, the New Testament and Paul particularly makes such use of this. Um, and especially the fact that, you know, Paul makes a really big deal out of this because this whole idea of Abraham's faith is the uh, is the starting point for all this. That it's Abraham's faith that is credited to him as righteousness. It's not the covenant ceremony. It's not the circumcision. Uh, but that Abraham steps out in faith to use a... Yeah, he believes the Lord and it's credited to him as... Or reckoned to him as righteousness. And yeah, it, and then you have this... Yeah fascinating ceremony where you know he he abraham has to cut these animal parts in in, in two and and Mm -hmm. makes you know this like almost like except for the birds he doesn't cut in two uh but these other animal carcasses and it's like this little sort of like i guess it's like running the gauntlet right you know and in the hazing ritual you know you pass through the normally what happened here right this is a like a suzerian (laughs) treaty i think is what it's called where where basically, yeah. if 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 I was going to make you my vassal, I'd say to you, you know, if you if you uh, as my sort of subject screw me over, then I'm going to cut you up like these animals are. So walk through the covenant, but walk through the animal gauntlet, so you know that, like, you know, you're the one that uh, that this is what would happen yeah. to you if 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 you don't do your end of the bargain. But but Abraham doesn't isn't asked to walk through the covenant, put the animal parts. Yeah, there's a there's a bunch of different ways to get at this. I mean, certainly the you know the suzerain vassal covenant treaty. If you're into the ancient Near Eastern background stuff, that's a good way to go. Uh, but there's also um, a way of looking at this that the the sacrifices passing through is like Israel passing through the waters, right? Passing through the fire, as Isaiah says later. So you know, I mean, he just talked about um, delivering um, his ancestors. So there might be an Exodus theme running through this. I think that's one way to look at it, where uh, Israel herself is actually symbolized as the sacrifice. Um, and again, I'll, I'll go back to my, my biased uh, Trinitarian thing that, you know, if, if that's the case with the Exodus, then I look at the fire um, and the torch here as, as a sign of God's presence, as a sign of God's spirit. So, you know, it's really hard to come down on any of those in particular, but there's a lot of rich biblical imagery here that I think you can rightfully and faithfully draw on um, and and connect us to it as well. I think you can connect us to Abraham, to the sacrifice, to that ceremony, this idea of passing through the flames um, or passing through the sacrifices, I should say. So yeah, there's just a lot going on and depending on your context or how you like to preach, there's several different directions you could go. You could even go Joel Osteen, you know? Yeah, you could. Could could you please do some more of that voice? That was really. Exactly. I mean, don't, don't ask for second or third best from God. Uh, You know, it's, it, Terrence Freetheim did the New Interpreter's Bible, Genesis Commentary. And this is not a sort of guy given to, he's not an evangelical scholar. He's a very mainline scholar. So I find 
his suggestion is very interesting. Last someone you think this is kind of a conservative bias reading of this text. He says, God, symbolized by the smoke and fire, actually passes through the divided animals. God here acts alone. This specifies the unilateral character of the promise. The deity takes on the only obligation in this covenant. Royal grants in the ancient Near East are a possible parallel, he notes. God's personal involvement constitutes the unusual character of the right in an act of self-imprecation. Self-imprecation, interesting language. God, in in effect, puts the divine life on the line, writing the promise in blood. Mm. God's swearing by his own self refers to this promise. The author uses this phrase because God cannot invoke a higher power regarding the penalty. In some sense, Abraham functions as a witness because he is involved in the preparations. God's swearing also alludes to promises to David and to Noah. So here we have the sense that, you know, God, the unilateral act of God and self, you know, imprecation if if i don't if you don't if it's not fulfilled no matter if it's on your end or my end let the curse fall on me i mean so yeah i mean blessed is the one or cursed is the one who hangs on the tree yeah. right and you have god bearing uh the the bearing the responsibility of, of uh adam and israel's sort of failure in the covenant yeah and that's the key difference between this and the other ancient near eastern parallels is that you, know, you have god offering himself as the king and the priest who um, takes on the sacrifice. So you can see where that goes. You can draw a straight line from this to, um, you know, the book of Hebrews comes to mind where Jesus is the priest and the sacrifice. And it's a really complex, but, but beautiful narrative there. The other thing I would point out about this passage is the promise of the, of the stars. Um, you know, there's a lot to that in the Old Testament, this idea of, of stars and lights governing the, the day and the night and the idea of stars as the generations and periods of time. And, you know, we often skip over things like that. But that imagery is, is really powerful that to say that your descendants will be like the stars is not just to say that there will be a lot of them, but it, it may also to be be to say that and they will be for a long time. And that in some sense, they will they will rule, they will govern um, and that they will be lights for the whole world. So I always like to pause on little things like that that we tend to skip over that I think in the Old Testament world are are pretty significant, actually. It's like you're reading the text through new eyes. Well, uh, I am. Because <laughs> <laughs> I just totally ripped, because I ripped about half of that off. That, of that, there Jordan we have a Jim, I, Jim Jordan joke for our listeners. Yeah. And those who re- read Jim Jordan will get it. Yeah. Those who have ears, yeah, you know, understand, <laughs> you know. I, 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 yeah, go ahead. Well, and the other, the other, the other side of that is when, the, in, in verse seventeen, when the sun goes down and it was dark. So there is this light and darkness play here, where all of a sudden it's like the the ruling, the rulers of the world have gone dark, and the only light left is, is yeah. God passing through, right? So I don't know. It's I, I understand that some of that stuff could get pretty far fetched, but it's a really rich text, not just because of the the covenant ceremony, which which the New Testament draws on, but just the symbols here and the imagery, and and in my view, the, the Trinitarian dynamic here. There's, it's actually a pretty fun text to preach on if, if you focus here. Yeah. And unlike, you know, many churches, we have churches that either demonize doubt or valorize doubt. Yeah, God, right. God neither celebrates Abraham's doubt nor condemns it, but meets it with his own person, which is, is, you know, the, the answer to doubt is not demonizing it or valorizing it, but, but having God meet it. Yeah. And it's interesting too, how yeah, this phrase, you know, for those who are into this sort of thing, you know, that reckon to him as righteousness is a is a really key thing in biblical scholarship over the last couple of decades. And, but I think simply put, you know, the way that it gets used in the new Testament is just that 
whatever we mean by faith, that that's the that's the real crux of the matter here, that somehow Abraham just, you know, even with all his doubt, believes God. And it's not by the circumcision. It's not by the covenant ceremony. It's not by the flesh. Um, and maybe that's the most important thing to take from that phrase. Oh, God said to Abraham, kill me a son. Abe said, man, you must be putting me on. God said, no. Abe said, what? God said, you can do what you want, Abe, but the next time... On to Philippians, the third chapter, verses 17 through the fourth chapter, verse 1. Paul encourages the, the Philippians to imitate him. And look in his example, and he warns them about people who live as enemies of Christ, telling, uh, telling the Philippians about them, even with tears, their end is destruction, that God is their belly, their glory, and their glory is in their shame. Such an interesting <laughs> phrase. Their mind are set on earthly, on earthly things, but that our citizenship is in heaven, and it is from there that we're expecting a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humiliation. Fascinating text here. It, 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 here, the enemies of the gospel are not, it seems in this particular passage, it's not the kind of legalists that you see in Galatians, but it's almost those who for some reason seem to, their sort of way they lose sight of Christ and, and who they are in him is, is through license rather than legalism. Uh, yeah, that's good. Yeah, because it's you've got a little alliteration there. You could do like a nice PowerPoint slide, L, L, you know. Well, yeah, and actually, um, you know, when you look at 17 through the end of the chapter, that's actually, in my view, part of a much better literary structure in that across that um, all of chapter three. So, you know, it's really important to read it in context because all of chapter three, I think, is the, the central piece is verse 10 and 11, knowing Christ's resurrection is suffering, becoming like him in his death. Um, I, you know, when I did some work on this passage in the past, um, I, I think there's a pretty clear chiastic structure to the whole chapter. You, you open up with these evildoers who mutilate the flesh and then you end up with them at the end and, and the whole central piece is identifying with Jesus. So I think that the lectionary selection here can be a little bit misleading because the chapter as a whole really, um, I think ha- has to frame it. Um, even, you know, the righteousness stuff shows up early in the chapter, just like in Genesis, Genesis 15. But yeah, it, it is interesting how they talk about the glory and their shame, mindset on earthly things, citizenship in heaven. Uh, there is there is a contrast being set up, and I think what you point about the legalism versus license is is pretty key for understanding it. There is legalism warning earlier, right mm-hmm. in Philippians. There, the, yeah, you're, the the mutilators and stuff. Yeah, so it's interesting that that here both enemies, both there are two ways to kind of get uh, to lose sight of Christ and lose connection to Christ. Right, one is by sort of fastidious obsession with the rules and the other is a sort of indifference and license uh you know those bo- both of those can be just as worldly and and disconnect you from the you know the the life of the kingdom yeah and that makes me think too that you know i think that can help us understand this idea of dual citizenship that paul has here that we're we're essentially citizens of two kingdoms in the, in this life you know we're the citizens of that earthly kingdom where you do have to walk that line precisely because you know, he says in other places, we've already been raised with Christ. So we're citizens with heaven. We're with him in the heavenly realm. Um, I've always found it to be a really helpful lens for understanding the Christian life, that you are a dual citizen. You know, it keeps you away from um, what I would say uh, can be a, a dangerous type of, of nationalism or patriotism, but it doesn't deny it either. It doesn't deny that we live in this life and that we have to um, care about certain things. So 
Yeah, this is one of those great passages of, uh, I'm tempted to say, you know, inaugurated eschatology, but that's not really what I mean. It, it really is more of a passage of a recognizing our dual citizenship, of somehow being seated with Christ who is ascended, but also still living and walking in this world. And that's not any, that's not a tension that's easy to, to navigate, but it's, it's uh, here in Paul's um, third chapter. It's interesting, too. Peter Lightheart, our, our mutual friend, wrote a really interesting commentary on First John, where he argues that the opponents in First John could be Judaizers, right, as opposed to Gnostics. And, you know, that is such a provocative claim. But when he says that the, the sort of legalizing kind of uh, uh, folks who are sort of obsessed with a certain kind of Torah observance and what the Gnostics or proto-Gnostics have in common is they're both religions that put the veil back up, that sew the veil back up. Mm. So if there's a, if there's this sort of dual citizenship made possible because the veil is torn and, and, and we, we're united with Christ even in this present age, we're, we're citizens already in part of the age to come. It's sort of that both the sort of legalism and the license through something like spiritualism or Gnosticism put the veil back up, right? And you kind of, then there's these practices uh, or these transcendent sort of things that that kind of uh, are responsible for bringing the veil back, right? Or they separate, they separate the reality in a way that's not sort of intention like you're talking about it. Yeah, that's a good point. And the other thing that makes me think of, Scott, is... I see a lot of tendencies um, among colleagues and peers of mine to to basically either be doing Christology or Jesusology. <laughs> um, I think we get pulled into the to the very earthly moral example of Jesus, and that's all we're concerned about. Or we get pulled into the the Jesus who's on the other side of the veil, right? The heavenly Jesus, the the the, uh, uh, the Christological Jesus. And Paul's just not going to allow us to do that. He's not going to allow us to put that that veil up, as you say. Um, we really do have to keep both of them in mind because Paul here is talking about earthly enemies who pull us in different directions, you know, the principalities and powers, but is yet straining forward to what lies ahead, which I think is that kind of grand apocalyptic vision of, of what lies beyond this life. So um, I love the fact that Paul's not going to let us get away with either of those tendencies and is always pulling us back um, somewhere that, that tries to, to straddle both both sides. On to the gospel reading here. We have Luke 13, verses 31 through 35, where Jesus is talking about how uh, that you know Jerusalem is the one that, that kills the prophets, you know, because he's warned. It's interesting here. He's warned by the Pharisees who, although they are interlocutors at times, these group of Pharisees seem to have some sympathy for him, and they say, Get away from here, for Herod is wants to kill you. And Jesus, this is very interesting. Go and tell that fox for me. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah, it's like you brood of vipers. It's, it's funny because, you know, Zorro is the fox, El Zorro. So maybe uh, Herod is like, he's like, tell, go tell El Zorro for me that uh, I'm casting demons for me cures today and tomorrow. And on the third day, uh, on the third day, I finished my work. It's like, hey, go tell Herod. I don't have time. Look, I'm fully booked. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, I'm healing, I'm curing demons. You see I'm busy here, Herod? I'll be finished <laughs> on the third day, all right? And, uh, you know, it's it's interesting because uh, I'm sure that that his people that are warning him are sure that he's going to flee. And, and 
It's almost to say, look, I'm not, no, I'm not, you know, Herod is, is, is a matter, uh, is not a matter of critical importance like me going to Jerusalem is, like me finishing this work so that I can finish and go to Jerusalem mm-hmm. at the place where, you know, that the, the prophets go, you know, that the, 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 the prophets, uh, and the, also he knows that he's destined probably for, you know, it, it's interesting because when he looks at, when he looks at Jerusalem and weeps, it's almost like when Ezekiel sees the glory temple leaving, glory leaving the temple before it actually happens and destroy. Like Jesus, is almost like seeing uh, the temple's worst days ahead of it, you know, before they happen. Yeah, man. There, there's a, you know, the whole Gospel of Luke really is about this dismantling of the various um, power structures. Um, it, it really is amazing how Jesus does this. So Jesus is trying to drain. The swamp. It's swampy. <laughs> He's going to drain it and make Israel great again. <laughs> the funny thing is, I think that's what the disciples think Jesus is talking about. Um, <laughs> uh, hey, can I be like Scott Pruitt and run the EPA? Yeah, that's right. That's exactly what they do. You know, throughout all Mark's gospel, they keep stopping him while they're walking along saying, no, seriously, uh, can I be the attorney general? Let's get serious. Um, yeah. And, and I, I love I love uh, wondering about this tone uh, where Jesus responds and, and says, well, you know, go and tell that fox I'm casting out demons. You know, it's almost like Jesus kind of saying, oh, OK, well, why don't you go tell him I'm doing all the things he doesn't want me to do? I mean, it's just really, I mean, frankly, kind of uh, mocking of Herod. And it's it is a disruption of those structures to say, listen, that's not really where the authority is. And then even to say. Yeah, and, and tomorrow I'm going to be on my way because it's impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. I, I just wonder if there's some sarcasm in that to say, well, yeah, I'm going to keep going to do what I'm going to do. And I'm going to go out here because they'll never track me down out there. Um, and of course, you know, in Hebrews, it talks about going outside the camp. So there's some, maybe some symbolism there. But, um, you know, it, what really interests me about this passage is that, you know, you could identify with this passage in several different ways. Uh you could you could identify to be uh, as if you know you're Jerusalem to be uh, pitied and rebuked, um, you know woe uh, woe to all these places that Jesus says in the Gospels, including Jerusalem, or maybe you identify with the children who just, who uh, children of Jerusalem who Jesus desires to gather as a hen, um, or maybe we're with Jesus having to accept that our mission is like His, uh, being you know rejection, humility, anticipation of death. So. One of the really interesting questions for me with this text is to ask people, you know, what's your point of intersection here? I mean, where do you tend to gravitate? Or with Herod, of course. Yeah, and that's what, and that's what I mean by the Jerusalem power structures, right? To be rebuked and that sort of thing. So, are you going to preach on this and call this uh, sermon title "Drain the Swamp"? Because that people will love that. Draining the swamp. Yeah. Uh, no, but you know, you know what is interesting about this. The, the, my favorite image in this passage is when he's lamenting over Jerusalem, how, how I've long, have often desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you. You know, N.T. Wright writing on this, on the same image in Matthew, right, where Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the yeah. prophets. You know, how often have I longed to gather your children as a hen gathers her chicks? The same image. And N.T. Wright says that, the images of a farmyard fire, the hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and when the fire has run its course, there will be found a dead hen, scorched and blackened, but with live chicks under her wing. Jesus seemed to be indicating his hope that he would take upon himself the judgment that was hanging over the nation and city. I love the image. Is that true? 
<laughs> I mean, and and Wright says it's true. Well, then it must be. I mean, come on, you think that guy's going to write something down that's not true? Yeah, I I'd be interested to go back and see if um, someone like Ken Bailey has written on this. You know, the stuff he does with this um, first century yeah. context is so rich. I wonder. If but he's the, on this. and it's interesting, you know. Bart talks about in Church Dogmatics, Church Dogmatics four one, the Church who talks about Christ as the Judge judged in our place. Yeah. And so he's the one that announces the judgment and yet bears it. You know, he's the judge. He's the only one who has the right to judge, you know, which is what scandalizes people. This guy acts like he wrote the Torah and he does because he's the only one truly fit to judge. And yet he's the one who takes the judgment in our place. Yeah, I think you can make the case that that sort of runs throughout um, all of these readings this week, which, you know, makes sense with Lent that you know, I have a lot of stuff in this in these readings this week about um, beholding the glory of the Lord or in the presence of the Lord, you know, um, so it, for, for those who read Psalm uh, 27 this week, it's, it's the same sort of thing uh, to desire to behold the glory of the Lord, the face of the Lord. Um, and uh, I think we, we see that in all of these um, and, and the idea that, you know, there's definitely kind of a turning involved, right? I mean, there's a turning in and in, in a repentance. So yeah, lots of different directions you could go. Well, blessings in everyone's preaching and in in listening, whether you're whichever side of the pulpit you're on this week. And thank you, my friend, for doing this with me. Yeah, thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Synaxis Podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to iTunes, give it a rating, write a review, and subscribe. Or pass it along to a friend via email or say something about it on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks to Adam for coming on the podcast and thanks to you for listening to Synaxis. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.